Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 50. Hear now the word of the living God. Behold, there was a man named Joseph, a counselor, and he was a good man and a just. The same had not consented to the counsel and the deed of them. He was of Arimathea, the city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. This man went unto Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a sepulcher that was hewn in stone, wherein never man before was laid. And that day was the preparation, and the Sabbath drew on. And the women also which came with him from Galilee followed after and beheld the sepulcher and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments and rested the Sabbath day according to the commandment. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do come to this passage this morning asking that thou wouldst indeed open our ears and our hearts that we might receive thy word. We ask, O Lord, that thou wouldst be pleased to bring forth thy word from thy servant. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we were printing out the bulletin yesterday, my wife looked at the title of the sermon and she started to laugh. <laughs> and I started to laugh because when you look at the title of the sermon this morning, Christ Descended into Hell, that seems like a strange title for a sermon, particularly on the 24th of December. But as we have been making our way through the gospel according to Luke, we come to this passage that is often overlooked that is often ignored because it's just simply an account of the burial of Jesus Christ. No big deal, right? Well, that's what we oftentimes assume. But as we look at our text this morning and consider this strange title, Christ Descended into Hell, we think of those words from that ancient creed known as the Apostles' Creed, that Christ Jesus died... Under Pontius Pilate was died, buried, and he what? Descended into hell. Now when you think about that phrase, descended into hell, Christ did not go to the place that we know as hell. But hell there entails two things. Hell is the place of the grave or death. But it also entails all of the suffering and all of the agony associated with his suffering and death. But as we come to this passage, we remember those words of the Apostle Paul there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which are for our instruction. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if you keep 
the memory, what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And then the text goes on and shows the witnesses that saw him after his resurrection. But here Paul is writing to defend the doctrine of the resurrection, which we will look at next week. But here as he begins to lay out the the foundation of the Christian faith, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul begins by saying that the gospel was first delivered unto you, stating that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And there, as Paul refers to the scriptures, he's referring to the Old Testament. So everything in the Old Testament tells of the sufferings, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we come to this passage, which oftentimes is unfamiliar to us, we just assume that Christ was buried. But what do we see in the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ that gives instruction, that gives us hope, I think as we begin to look here at this passage, first of all, we see a moving prelude to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Somehow we often skip from verse 49 of chapter 23 to chapter 24 in verse 1. We leave out the burial. We assume that he was buried. But that is all part of, of what Christ came to do. That he fulfilled all of Scripture. That in all of his suffering, passion, death, burial, and resurrection, he fulfills all of Scripture. But here his burial is that moving prelude to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we see that moving prelude to the resurrection of Christ, there's something very important for us to see in that prelude to the resurrection. There in verse 50, it tells us, behold. We've seen that word behold before, but it's a word that that draws our attention. This is something important you don't want to miss, so observe. But there was a man named Joseph who was a counselor, He was a good man and just. He doesn't give us a whole lot of detail, but if you go to John chapter 19, all four Gospels tell the story of the burial of Christ. It's all four Gospels, a tapestry weaving together all of the accounts of the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. There it tells us of a man named Joseph who was a counselor. He was a good man. He was a just man. That word counselor there entails that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was of the high Jewish council. 
And so he was a man who was a Jew. He was a man who was part of the Sanhedrin that was responsible for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice the text tells us that he was a good man and a just man. He was there preparing the body of Jesus for his burial. But as it says he's a counselor, he is one who counseled with the Sanhedrin. He was one who is described as righteous and just. It's interesting here as we come to the end of the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ, preparing for his resurrection, we see something profound and significant that we don't want to miss. That is the life of this man named Joseph. Now, John's gospel in chapter 19 not only tells about a man named Joseph, but another man named Nicodemus. Remember him in John 3? He came by night to Jesus. He secretly wanted to follow Christ. But here, Joseph is not a secret disciple. It says that he did not consent to the counsel of the Sanhedrin. In fact, I'm sure he was outspoken. But I want us to notice something here in this text of Scripture that's very instructive. When you look at this man, Joseph, we find here that this points us to something significant that begins the Gospel of Luke. When you go back to Luke chapter 1 and 2, remember who wrote this account of the Gospel? It was Theophilus, that man who set in order the things that were believed among us. And there in that account, it shows of him writing an orderly account. The Gospel of, of Luke was written to this one man, Theophilus. He's writing an account of the Gospel so that men might receive this Christ, that they might indeed find that He welcomes sinners, that He brings vision to the blind, that He gives sight to those who are deaf. But then as He gives this orderly account, notice here in the text of Scripture, what does the Gospel of Luke begin with? We find Joseph and the women there at the end of the gospel, just as we see Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, Simeon, and Anna there in chapters 1 and 2. There in chapter 1, it speaks of Zacharias, who said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I'm an old man, my wife is stricken in years. And the angel said unto him, I am Gabriel that stands, that stand in the presence of God. And then he says, Behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed. Verse 21, And the people waited for Zacharias, marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. But there it, it describes... These men and women, it describes Zacharias, it describes Mary, 
the one whom the angel appeared to, and said, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. And then you see the record there in chapter 2, or the end of chapter 1, where Mary does magnify the Lord. Mary gives praise that her Redeemer indeed has come, that she has been chosen to carry that child in her womb. And then as you come to chapter 2, it tells that account of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see the songs and praises in chapter 1 of Mary, of Zacharias, and of Elizabeth. But here we see the record of these saints who testify to the saving work of God. God has preserved there in chapters 1 and 2 a faithful remnant of Israel that testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not the end of the story because as we come to chapter 23, we see there another account of not only men but women testifying to the salvation of God. And it says there in verse 51 that this Joseph from a town of Arimathea, city of the Jews, who also himself waited for the kingdom of God. Like Anna and those women in chapter 2 who waited for the kingdom, just like that blind priest there in the temple longed to see the salvation of God, just as Simeon longed to look upon that Christ child. So now, Joseph and Nicodemus and the women witness what has been witnessed throughout the entirety of the gospel, that the Lord God preserves a remnant. And we see that here at the end of Luke's gospel, that God raises up converts from the most unlikely place. There's nothing significant really mentioned about Joseph other than what's here. There's nothing significant about these women who prepare the body of Jesus and who later witness his resurrection. They are just ordinary men and women, but God, through the work of his Spirit, calls them unto himself, and he shows that they are the witnesses of the saving work of Christ. Now these men and women in chapter 1 and 2 of Luke's account of the gospel had not yet seen Christ, but they were waiting for the salvation and the consolation of Israel. Now the salvation and the consolation of Israel has come. And it says that this Joseph also waited for the kingdom of God. And now he saw the kingdom of God, and yet he will see it even more fully. He will see it in more brilliance when Christ is resurrected on the first day of the week. And so we don't want to miss this wonderful prelude to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because here, Luke wants us to note 
Just like those men and women in the beginning of Luke's gospel, so these men and women at the end of Luke's gospel testify to the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful reminder to us that without the death and burial of Christ, there is no resurrection. And so Luke, as he begins with Simeon, there in chapter 2, like Joseph, he was a devout and just man or a righteous man. Zechariah, Elizabeth, and Mary, they were righteous and devout saints of God. But here we find Joseph, who was a convert, the women who follow Christ. And we see even Nicodemus, who comes to witness the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we move to our second point, we find here in the burial of Christ that this signifies for us that Jesus died a real death. There are some who still suppose that Christ just simply fell asleep or that he was just somehow later revived in the tomb or somehow he just went into what some call the swooning theory that he just from exhaustion just passed out. But I want us to note here that the death of Christ was a real death. Christ needed to die because as Paul reminds us that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures for our sin. And so this second Adam who was fully man and yet fully God comes and the scripture tells us that he tasted death for us. And so Christ needed to die. He needed to face the penalty of Adam's sin. That when in Adam all died, Paul says, in Christ all will be made alive. And so this second Adam had to die in order to bear the sins of many. It is that sign of Jonah that just as Christ was in the belly of the earth three days and three nights... So Christ, or just as Jonah was in the whale three days, so Christ would be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. As Christ is there in the heart of the earth, he descended into hell. He descended into the grave. He descended into that place of death. He was not exhausted. He was not just exhausted from all of the, the agony. But Christ died real death. You stop to think that there were 30 hours of the most intense agony that Christ bore. I never thought about that before, but 30 hours of intense agony. There was the flogging with cords, and those cords were made of leather strips, and they had pieces of metal and uh, uh, probably tooth from animals hanging on the end of that leather strip. And Jesus was beaten with that leather strip. And he had great bruises 
and John in his account in chapter 19 says that there was a loss of blood, that blood and water flowed from his side, indicating that he lost bodily fluid. A spear, John chapter 19, verse 34, was thrust in his side. No man could endure that. Jesus could not have been exhausted from that. Jesus had to face a real death. Jesus had to face death on our behalf. Here we see the end of his act of humiliation. The two acts of Christ as our prophet, priest, and king. That in his humiliation, he was born in a stable. He was born in low conditions. He was born of a woman, born under the law. Christ went through all the trials and the testings that we go through. He underwent all human experience. He bore our sin, as the scripture says, in his own body upon the tree. And so this is not something that the early heretics of the church that have been condemned state that he was just kind of really a phantom. He was not really fully God and fully man, that he didn't really die. There's all kinds of notions and ideas. But the scripture reveals to us that he died a real death. That's why we see these witnesses. That's why we see the witnesses there in chapter 24 later. That they testify. That Jesus did indeed die a real death. How could they place him in a tomb if it was not a real death? Tells us there in verse 52 that Joseph went to Pilate and begged for the body of Jesus. Now why is this significant that he had to go and beg for the body of the Lord Jesus? Well, it's important to note that according to Roman law, one who was crucified had no right to burial. And so according to, to the law, one who was accursed, his body was left on the cross. His body was left for the vultures and for nature to take its course. And so Christ did not have right to burial because he was accursed. And so this man went to Pilate and the text says he begged for the body of the Lord Jesus. Now do you not think that Pilate would have to declare that he was dead? Do you not think that others would have to declare that this man is dead? Having worked in a funeral home, you call the funeral home after the police have been to the home and declared there's a death. You can't just assume somebody died. Somebody has to take a document and declare that someone's dead. If you're in a hospital, the hospital does that. But Jesus had to be declared legally dead. And so Joseph goes and pleads for the body of the Lord Jesus. And then the text tells us that as he 
received that body and took it down from the cross and laid it in linen, laid it in that sepulcher. We see here that Jesus died a real death. This was not a common death. This was a death of the Son of God. Here, Luke shows us that this one who is born of a woman in his humiliation faces a common grave. But the scriptures tell us that death could not hold him. That Christ had power over death. As John reminds us, he had power to lay down his life. He had power to take it up again. And so Jesus here is dead. That's why the confession, that's why the creed state that he died. He was buried. He descended into hell. He descended into that place of death. Christ descended into my hell. He descended into your hell. He took upon himself our sin in all of his suffering, in all of his agony. Christ died so that we don't have to face death again. Here the Lord Jesus Christ in his humiliation dies and is buried. He needed to be He needed to die. He needed a true death. He needed a real death to show that indeed He was our Savior and our Redeemer. No man could face 30 hours what Christ faced and not have died a real death. But as we Think of the women who witnessed the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something significant as we understand the burial of Christ. Because again, as Luke does over and over again, shows the importance of women. And I think it needs to be emphasized in our day because there's so many extremes on the position and role of women within the church, within the Christian faith. There are those who go all the way to the extreme patriarchal position. There are those who go all the way to the other extreme of feminism. And yet Luke shows the importance of women created in the image of God. Even though they are the weaker vessel, they are created in the image of God. But Luke shows that he calls women just as he calls men to follow him. Luke shows that they play an important role as we saw in chapters 1 and 2, of the the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. These women, indeed, are seen here in the text, showing that they are witnesses. And so it is Joseph and Nicodemus and the women who bury the Lord Jesus Christ. He had to be dead. Not almost dead, but dead. And as he faced that preparation for his burial, we see these women with great piety, great devotion, giving a proper burial for the Lord Jesus Christ. We miss that oftentimes. Here is the 
the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the proper funeral that was given for one who died. There wasn't the two extremes we see today where there's on one hand all of this fanfare and all of this pomp and ceremony, but on the other hand, oh, just just have them cremated and I'll pick up their remains whenever I get there. This was a proper burial for the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice the prophecy is fulfilled that Joseph places the body of Jesus where? In a borrowed tomb that had never been used before. Joseph, according to the Gospel of John, was a rich man. He had wealth, and so he was buried in a rich man's tomb that no one had ever been laid in. And yet in the humiliation of Christ, he was born in humble conditions, and yet in his resurrection, he is exalted. But it was Nicodemus who assisted Joseph and the women with the burial. A hundred pounds of spices and ointment were used. Why did they use spices and ointment? That was an ancient way of preserving the body. Now they use formaldehyde. But in those days, they used the spices to prepare his body for burial. And in those hundred pounds of spices used, those were used oftentimes for royalty and not for common men and women. But Jesus in his death, even though he is at the end of his exaltation, we see the, be- or the end of his humiliation, we see the beginning of his exaltation. That he who was born in a humble state is now king of kings and lord of lords. He is laid there in that body, in that tomb. His body is laid. And there we see that these women, along with these two men, prepare the burial for the Lord Jesus Christ. They did not bury him in disgrace, as we do in our day. But they buried him in honor and dignity. And here we find a great lesson for us for Christian burial. Not for the modern use of cremation and other forms of, of preparing dead bodies, but burial, because Christ was buried in honor. He was prepared and placed in that tomb. And the women testify to the death, the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Luke's gospel, when Jesus was born, it says he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Those were just common linens. But here, as you'll see in John 19, he was wrapped in fine linen. His body was given the dignity as any human body should be given. He was laid in a sepulcher. There they prepared his body. They quickly moved because the next day, the first day of the week was the Sabbath. They did not want to violate the Sabbath law. And so you see the women in their piety and devotion, not only testifying to the 
the death and burial of Christ, not only testifying to the fact that he indeed did die, but they were showing devotion to their Savior, preparing his body. And then they did so according to the law of God, that they might not violate the Sabbath day. But as these women showed true devotion and piety unto the Lord their God, this is the last Sabbath of the Old Covenant administration. This is the last Sabbath of that law under the Old Testament. Now we come to that new law. That's why we don't worship Christ on the seventh day. We worship Him on the first day. Because it is the beginning of a new era of the gospel age when believers worship on the first day of the week. And so as we see these women testifying to the Lord Jesus Christ's death and burial, what consolation and comfort does that give to us as believers? Well, we see there in Luke chapter 1 and 2 that Simeon was waiting for the consolation and the hope of Israel. Well, the consolation and hope of Israel has come. The Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled all of Scripture. He now sits on the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Yet we find here that this offers great hope and comfort for believers, both in life and in death. I love the words of the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. I've seen this used at so many funerals and it is such a wonderful consolation. What is our only comfort in life and in death? That I with both body and soul, both in life and in death and in death, am not my own, but belong unto the faithful Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father no hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation and therefore by his Spirit he assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Believer, don't you see the hope and the consolation that you have in this life? That because Christ died, because he poured out his blood for you, he has fully satisfied all of your sins, past, present, future, even those sins that entangle us. Even those sins we struggle with daily, he hath fully satisfied all of our sins. He preserves us so that we will not fall. The Lord assures us of our salvation. He assures us of eternal life that we might live unto him. But what is our consolation and hope even in death. Well, I'm sure the children have not memorized the larger catechism. 
But I draw your attention to question 86 of the larger catechism. And I think this is something important that might be a good thing to meditate upon this afternoon, your Lord's Day observance. What is the communion in glory with Christ, which the members of the invisible church enjoy immediately after death? The moment you close your eyes and your heart stops beating and the life has gone out of your body, this is what you experience. Communion in glory with Christ, which the members of the invisible church immediately enjoy after death. Their souls are made perfect in holiness. They are received into the highest heaven where they behold the face of God in light and glory waiting for the full redemption of their bodies, which even in death continue united to Christ, rest in their graves as in their beds, till at the last day they again are united with their souls. Because of Jesus' death, we experience the same that Jesus experienced, that he died, his soul and body died. He had a real human body, he had a real human soul, and in his death, body and soul were separated for that, that short time. But we are united in Christ, and in life as well as in death. We are in perfect union with Christ and we are given the promise of life eternal. To draw your, quest, your attention to the shorter catechism, some of you might know this one, and that is question 37. Question 37, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies being still united to Christ rest in their graves until the resurrection. Believer, there is so much comfort and hope in life and in death that our bodies at death Lay in the grave, but our souls are with Christ in glory until that time of resurrection. And so as we think about the great hope that we have in Christ, oh, what great consolation and comfort we find, even in this text of Scripture, that because Jesus was buried, we too, when we are buried, will be raised to life Again, but in that moment, in that blink of an eye, we are in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a glorious day that will be. One writer, one Christian writer, Frederick Buchner, in his book, The Longing for Home, speaks of Christ as our home. We must receive the Christ who is 
who welcomes sinners, who brings vision to blind eyes, but blurred vision. Perhaps home growing up was not a pleasant place. Some can testify to that. But oh, for the believer, there's always a longing for home. There's always a longing for that place where there will be no more death. We long for that place where there will be no more struggle with sin. We long for that place where everything will be made perfect. But one thing we long to see more than anything is the face of the Lord Jesus Christ in his full humanity and divinity. We will look upon this Christ who was pierced for us and on the glorious day of resurrection every believer will look upon him and we will find the fulfillment of all of what the scripture promises. Believer, there is no cause for hopelessness. There is no cause for depression or discontent because Christ has promised us a future home because Christ was buried. We too will face the grave longing for that day when every body of believers will be raised in hope and our souls united that we might find the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we consider our text this morning, let us give praise unto this Christ. Let us consider him. What will you do with this Christ? Will you follow him like Joseph did? Will you follow him like the women did? Like Nicodemus? Will you give your wholehearted allegiance to this Christ and follow him? For indeed, he is a wonderful Savior. He is a glorious King. He is indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords. And He will reign forever and ever. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, we do stand in Thy presence this morning and give praise and glory unto Thee. For You have, by Your life, death, and resurrection, accomplished all that the scriptures predicted. But not only that, but you have indeed given life to those whom you have rescued out of Adam's fallen race. And you have brought us into the glorious blessings of thy kingdom. O Lord, as we go forth this day and as we continue to remember this Sabbath day and keep it holy, We ask that we might meditate upon the glorious consolation and comfort that we have in Christ. And may we do, may we indeed follow him. We pray this in his name. Amen.